If you only had one day to live, just one day left, what would you do? If you only had a 24-hour period, let's say 36 hours, whatever, a short amount of time, what would you do with that? You probably would stop and you start thinking about others. Maybe you'd like want to go visit like your favorite place on the Blue Ridge or go to the ocean one more time. Maybe you'd want to have a big party with lots of people. But I, I would venture to guess a lot of you would want a quiet dinner at home with your family, you know, or, or really close friends. What, what would you do? What would you say? What words of affection would you give to your family if these are the last words that you could give them? Would there be words of instruction? Honey, the key to the garage is, you know, in the top dresser drawer or, I don't know, those things that we forget to say and then in the end we wish we had. Um, words of instruction, words of love, encouragement. It's okay. Well, in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 13, we're privileged to get a glimpse of how Jesus spent the last hours of his life before his crucifixion, who he spent it with and what he had to say to them. Uh, the love of Christ has been the defining element of his ministry for three years. And here in these last hours, it shapes all that he does. He loved them to the end. It's been called the farewell discourse, uh, starting in chapter 13 of John's gospel, about five chapters of the gospel, and it's almost like 20% of all that he's written us, goes to describe what Jesus does and says with his disciples here in the upper room before they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John's insight, it's so intimate. We get to hear what Jesus says as his last words, how he wants to help them, prepare them for what's to come, love them, remind them that he will be with them, tell them that another one, the Spirit of God is coming to help them, letting them know that even though he's leaving, it's a good thing for them that he's leaving because he's going to make a place for them, reminding them of how important it is for them to remain in him and that as they do so, that the Spirit of God will help them to bear much fruit. And he prays for them. We have this beautiful prayer uh, starting in chapter 17 where Jesus prays for them and he models prayer to his Father. It's an amazing section of the book of John that begins here in chapter 13. And I'm only going to preach for you, I promise, uh, about 17 verses of this text. And so as we get started, I needed to set the tone there because we'll really be looking at that over the next probably two months. Uh, but look at these verses here in uh, John 13. I want to read for you again the first verse. John tells us that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. One of the first things that might jump out to you is that language of the hour had come because we've talked about it and read about it and heard it preached from here to describe what this hour means. Jesus is, has used it so many times that it's very familiar to us and, and it's often, most often been used to describe something that's yet still to come. Um, it's like a shortcut 
the hour is something that communicates the time of his death, that ultimate thing that he was born to do. And now, it's right before him. And we are with him in this final countdown to his death. And John uses this language of love to describe everything that Jesus does from here forward. His state of mind, that which he's thinking about. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Love to the last breath. And what does that mean? There's so much in the gospel. And as we've looked from beginning now to the, the middle here, two-thirds of, of the gospel, John, how much love is at work. Jesus perfectly demonstrating love to us. Certainly in that phrase, love them to the end, it must mean more than just to the end of his life, to the end, to the crucifixion. And yet, think about what it would mean that as you are going to your death, that rather than thinking about yourself and all that you have to endure, you're thinking about those that you're doing it for. But Jesus loved them to the end of his life, certainly. But he also loved them to the end of their lives. And through his death and through his resurrection, he was able to provide for them life, abundant, but life eternal. He loved them to the end, as in to the end of all things. He loved them to eternity. Uh, he loved them to the uttermost. The songs that we sing about God's love for us in Christ, we couldn't count, and all of us probably would have our favorites. We just sang one this morning. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. His love uh, is demonstrated to the highest intensity. It's, it's love to the uttermost. It's love that's unselfish, as we'll see. It's unconditional. It's untiring. It's unceasing. As he prepares to go to the cross, he demonstrates the full extent of his love. Before all this unfolds, though, Jesus gathers with his disciples one last time for this meal. It's where it all begins. And he prepares them for what's to come as they celebrate the Passover meal together. Now, it was traditional for a servant to wash the feet of all the guests before they would come in for a meal. And although Jesus had given them instructions in terms of how to prepare the meal, how to prepare a room for them to gather in privately, it appears that no arrangements were made for this very important social protocol. And that was a problem. It's a problem because in a culture where cleanliness was associated with holiness and purity, uh, washing of feet was a very important thing when you would go to someone's home. You have to remember that though flip-flops and sandals are extremely popular today, as we walk around in the streets today, they are nothing like the muddy, sloppy, goppy streets uh, of, of the towns and neighborhoods where they lived and functioned. Uh, so to wash the feet of a guest as they came in, though they might have bathed at home, as they come in caked with dirt and who knows what kind of filth, was a pretty lowly task, a really awful kind of task that was required of the servants. Um, it was such a distasteful thing that it was relegated really to the lowest of servants. And some writers, as I was reading, suggest that it was such a menial chore that even Jewish servants were spared the, the humiliation of doing it. And so it was left to the lowliest of servants, the Gentiles, to do this. 
Now, it's interesting that Luke, when he describes the Lord's Supper, tells us that there was some murmuring that was going on between the disciples. Some conversations kind of, you know, hushed, not where everybody could hear, but maybe there was, you know, kind of going on. But Jesus, as always, hears everything. And uh, they were, as usual, as has happened before, they were talking about who was the greatest of the disciples. Who was going to get the most honor? Who was the best disciple? And perhaps their remarks were made in light of this, this social miscue that there was no one to wash their feet. And no one was stepping forward to do it. So imagine the shock. Imagine the embarrassment when their master the Savior stands and takes off his robe and goes for the towel to wash their feet. I was trying to think of an example of how this would connect to us today because we don't wash feet normally. Um, so I told the congregation at the first service, all of us have problems with raccoons. They come and get in your trash, you know. And let's say they get into your trash one night, and it's been sitting all day, and it's nice and ripe, and it goes over, and it's all over the yard, and no one wants to pick that up, right? You know, you've asked one of the, the, your kids to do that. Johnny, you need to go pick up the trash. Well, that's the last thing they want to do, right? You don't want to do it. You've sent your child out to do it. And they're arguing amongst themselves about who's going to do it. And then all of a sudden, you look out, and Grandma is out in the yard picking up that trash. You'd be horrified, wouldn't you? And feel terribly guilty at the same time. I don't know what the disciples were thinking when Jesus stood, but I have to imagine it was a combination of horror and embarrassment and shock, kind of all rolled into one. But let's look again at, at the description that, that John gives us. Because he sets it against this glory of who Jesus is before he talks about him washing feet. So listen, he says, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, in other words, he had authority given to him by God, and knowing that he had come from God, he was God himself, and he was going back to God, he was returning to his place of glory, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John doesn't mention if anyone said a word. They would have been reclining uh, as was the custom. Rather than seated at a table with everybody in chairs and your feet being under a table, they were all reclining, probably laying down on the ground, propped up on their left side, uh, all of them like spokes of a wheel with their feet going towards the outside, and the common food shared amongst them in the, in the middle, in between. They would kind of lean and eat with their right hand. So their feet were on the outside of this, so as Jesus stands, it's clear and visible, and as he disrobes and then picks up this towel and one-to-one -one goes around behind them, stooping and kneeling, washing their feet. John doesn't mention that anyone said anything. Was it like an awkward silence? Were there 
painful expressions that they shared amongst the other disciples, regretting that they didn't jump up to take care of it? John doesn't say. But he does say that when Jesus got to Peter, that he got a little bit of resistance from Peter. We already know a little bit about Peter's character and his, his uh, it's common for him to speak out, sometimes say things without thinking about what he said. And here, he's humble enough to acknowledge that this is not right. And yet, he's a little bit too brash that he still thinks he could tell the Messiah what he ought to do. And he says, Lord, would, would you wash my feet? And Jesus, as he always does, exercising patience, he neither explains or justifies his action. He just continues what he's doing. The sovereign Lord promises Peter and the others that understanding would come with time. And it's almost like, G like Peter doesn't even hear what, what Jesus says. He's already got in his mind what he's going to say and what Jesus ought to be doing. And I, I just thought for a moment as I was studying, how often is that like us, that as God does something in our lives, that doesn't fit what we think he ought to be doing. Things aren't going the way we think they ought to be. How quick might we be, as Peter was, to speak our mind and tell the Lord what he needs to do for us? Listen to what Peter says, though. He says, you will never, ever wash my feet. And certainly there is some notion of wanting to honor Jesus rightly in that statement. But Peter has no idea what he's saying. As we can tell. <laughs> and Jesus firmly says, and his answer seems to communicate something a lot deeper than foot washing. He says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter, of course, says, well, Lord, then wash all of me. Head, feet, arms, everything. It's almost as if, you know, he's saying, if washing is important, then I want you to wash all of me, Jesus. And Jesus says, the one who's bathed does not need to wash again except for his feet because he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And of course, as we said, people would bathe before they would go to a social occasion and really all that needed to be cleansed was their feet. And so Jesus was stating very matter-of-factly that, no, all I need to do is wash your feet here. But this notion that he makes to talk about the disciples being clean, we'll talk about more in a minute. But then John slides in this, this uh, note in parentheses as he's looking back years later on this event and says, he said that because he knew that not all of them were cleaning. Thinking about Judas, who is lying there with the other 11 in his heart already planning, having made plans to betray this one who's washed his feet doesn't say that, Ju that Jesus skipped over Judas. He washed his feet as well. Jesus finishes. He puts back on his clothes. He retakes his place with them. And if the disciples are not confused enough, Jesus then asks them if they understood what he had done for them. Their silence, their lack of response probably speaks a lot here. Maybe they were thinking, uh, I wish I had spoken up instead of Peter. We don't know. Maybe they were thinking, I am so glad I didn't open my mouth like Peter just did. At the very least, I think like Peter, they were wishing that it had not been the master who had just washed their feet and wishing that they might have had enough initiative to do it. 
swallowed their pride, and done the dirty deed. The greatest was serving the least. We need to see that. Maybe it reminded them of the time before where they had been arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest, who was the best disciple, who deserved the most honor, who was going to get to stand, uh, sit by Jesus on his right or on his left. And, and Jesus reminded them that even he came not to be served in John 10, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There it is. Jesus challenges them to see that there's a connection between claiming Christ as their teacher and their Lord and following his example. A lot of people like to say what they do and who they are, but Jesus really challenges them. Um, Right away, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But if I've washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's nothing that I do that you ought to not do as well. Even in the small things like washing each other's feet, humble service, humble service is a mark of a follower of Christ. And disciples will begin to find joy in serving others and giving themselves away as well as they follow the example of their Savior. But as John always does, there's a lot more to this story than just reading the actions in the moment. And so we would close, before we close our, our books and stop taking notes, I really want us to go back and walk through the story a little bit again now that we have the details. Because we have to remember that everything that John puts to pen in his gospel is done so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing we might have life in his name. There is so much more to see here. John, looking back on the life of Jesus so many years later, is intentional about every single detail. And so as we look at this story, there's so much here to be gleaned about the gospel, about Jesus, about his love for us. If you're looking at this story already with eyes of faith, uh, you've already picked up the language that John uses that points us to the crucifixion. Do you see that? A simple foot washing episode is richly symbolic with things like the Messiah removing his clothes and humbling himself and fulfilling the obligation of a lowly servant. Jesus washes the dirty feet of the disciples and it points us to another washing, a washing that's to come, a future washing where stain of sin is clean and it's cleansed when the blood, his blood is poured out on a cruel cross and sin affects us a lot more than dirt on our feet. Jesus' words to Peter take on a whole different level of understanding when we see that in this simple action, Jesus is demonstrating the extent he will go to to love and reach his disciples. Oh, Peter, this simple act down out of love, it points to an essential act that Jesus says, I must do for you. And if you refuse to accept it, you'll have no part in my kingdom. You'll be an outcast Well, all of those who reject me because only those who believe are made clean. Only those who allow the blood of Christ to wash them clean will be included or have a part in the inheritance of Christ. It's a pretty stark statement that he makes in verse 8. He's speaking about a lot more than simply 
having his feet cleansed so that he can enjoy a meal around a table. But if we step back even further, I think we can see in this story really the whole arc of Christ's mission to save his people. And to do that, I want us to look at uh, Philippians chapter 2 for a minute. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Paul, in this letter to the Philippian church, is addressing some conflict that is going on between uh, this church family, some squabbling that's going on, some self-centeredness, some uh, lack of care for one another. And he points them to Christ as their example. But what I want you to see as we read this is really how this describes who Christ is and what he's done. Starting in verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has, ex- has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We could be tempted to see this act that Jesus does for us in going to the cross as a humiliating thing, and it is. Stripped bare, naked, he is hung on a cross, beaten and bloodied for crimes that he didn't commit. It's a humiliating thing, and yet it's not something that was unique to Jesus as hundreds of thousands of men went to the same fate, stuck in this Roman system of criminal punishment in that many people were uh, accused of things that they didn't do and paid a price far vaster than the crimes they would have done, as as well as those that rightly deserved it, criminals, thieves, murderers. So it wasn't as, as amazing as it was that Jesus died on a cross, the act itself is not as glorious as the fact that it was Jesus who through this death has wrought us forgiveness and salvation. It's that God, the glorious God of the universe, has stepped into human flesh, as Paul tells us in, second, in Philippians chapter 2, that makes this such a glorious thing. As I said at the beginning, the love of Jesus for us and his glory collide in this moment In the cross of Christ, where the king of the universe gives his life, his human life, for us on our behalf. Dying in our place, love has driven our Savior to the greatest act of humiliation, for which we, the redeemed, rightly give him the greatest glory. So how do we respond to this today? How do we respond to the gospel in John 13? So first, I want to address those uh, who are followers of Christ, because really this question in verse 12 is directed to us too, okay? Those of you who are followers of Christ, 
Do you understand what it is that Christ has done for you? Do you understand it? So I think the confession of a believer is that I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that living and dying, he has given his life for me so that I could live, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, not for myself, but for him, the one who died and was raised again on my behalf. The love of Christ compels us to live differently. Humble service must be rooted in the gospel because we won't find in ourselves uh, a motivation deep enough to serve sacrificially as Jesus has. On our own, we're self-serving. We're often arrogant. We serve when it's beneficial to us. We pick and choose how and when we're willing to serve, where we're willing to give. Um, But true gospel service flows from hearts of those who have first been served by their master who washed them and made them new. Uh, We can't call ourselves followers of Christ without serving. And it's never enough. We see this here as Jesus calls out the disciples. You're calling me Lord. You're calling me Savior. Calling me Master. You need to do what I'm doing. Are you perhaps as the servant greater than your Master who has given his all for you? Those are words that Speak to us, those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Our confession must always be measured by our actions. Not that our actions will ever save us, but they demonstrate whose we are. Service is formative. All of you that served at Serve Roanoke a couple of weeks ago, you would speak to this, that uh, uh, serving helps to realign our souls you've been on mission to El Salvador or Puerto Rico or Medford or many of the places that our church has gone, uh, you see that the more we serve, the greater our love for Christ and the greater our love for his kingdom. We need to see that as followers of Jesus, no one is above serving. We can never say, I'm too good to do that. When the maker of heaven and earth has stooped down to save us. No one is below being served. Jesus stoops down to wash the feet of all 12 of his disciples, including Judas. Were any of us really worthy? I really urge you to consider repenting of our pride and our arrogance to think that we don't have time to serve, that we don't have any need of serving. Um, to repent of the pride of selectively picking when or who is worthy of our sacrifice. Um, to humble ourselves before the king who freely offers grace and forgiveness to us today. So as a follower of Christ, I encourage you to consider Jesus' question. Do you understand what he's done for you? Secondly, to those who are not followers of Christ, Um, And what I mean by that is those who might be skeptics, those who know some of the Bible stories, but they're not, you might not really be convinced that Jesus is truly God. And I would also include in this group uh, those who know the Bible and believe in Jesus but have not fully grasped what it means to be a follower of Christ. Perhaps you think being a Christian is measured by how often you go to church. Rather than seeing that Christianity is marked by the allegiance of your soul. 
Do you belong to Christ? Has the work of Christ marked you so that you are changed forever? The Bible says, yeah, I want those that are not followers of Christ to consider this question too. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Because the Bible says that God showed his perfect love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus has made a way for your sin to be forgiven and your slate to be wiped clean forever. His sacrificial act can restore you to God. We who were once enemies of God, he now through Christ calls his sons and his daughters, his family. You can have a part in the blessing of new life, of eternal life. Um, But there is no place in Jesus' fellowship for those who have not been cleansed by his atoning death. Mark that in verse 8. It's a very sober verse where in response to Peter's well-intentioned, perhaps, thought, Jesus, don't, I don't want you to ever wash my feet. And Jesus says to them, I must wash you, or you'll have no part with me. And what was he speaking of? He was talking about this spiritual inheritance, this thing promised to those who are believers and followers of Christ, that those who have been redeemed and saved have something that awaits them, an abundant life, hope-filled life now, but a hope for the life that is to come. For those who haven't been washed, there is no inheritance that awaits us. That's what Jesus says to Peter. We have no part with Christ unless we let him wash us clean. And for this to happen, you must believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is the son of God. And you must own up to your sin and confess that you can't, you can't wash yourself clean. You can't fix this mess that is your life. Jesus offers grace, and he offers forgiveness, and he offers to clean you even today if you'll repent and if you'll believe. So for those who are not followers of Christ, I encourage you to consider the question, do you understand what it is that Jesus has done for you? I'm going to pray for us and then invite us to stand and uh, we will sing together and ask the Spirit of God to continue to work in our souls. Father, we are thankful, Lord, today for this work, the saving work that Christ has done for us. We confess, Lord, that it's hard to grasp what you've done. But thank you that your Spirit pulls at our heart and we realize, some of us for the first time, that we need this Savior Oh God, we pray that even today we would respond in faith to your call to follow Jesus. Help us, Lord, to do that, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.